I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you are trying to put together an account of Jesus's life and ministry. Sounds simple enough, but here's the catch. You can't just do a book report. You have no Bible to work with, no gospels, no single narrative. Instead, laid out on the table in front of you, there are a whole bunch of fragments. There are stories of things Jesus did, calming a storm, healing people, feeding a large crowd with a small bit of food, disputing with religious authorities. There are bits of Jesus's teaching on a number of topics, on forgiveness, on the demands of discipleship, on money and possessions, on the kingdom of God. And there are stories Jesus himself told about landowners and laborers, about shepherds and sheep, about families and second chances and actions of startling mercy. All these snippets come from a number of different places. Some had maybe been written down already. Some had been told in communities over the past few decades and passed on by word of mouth. They're just sort of heaped up on the table in front of you and you want to put all this into some kind of order, into a coherent story for others to read and cherish and learn from. So the question is, where to begin? Where to start in the story of all that Jesus said and did? We don't know exactly how the four gospel writers each did their work of assembling an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus, but it might have been a little bit like that, sorting through piles of stories and anecdotes and teachings that had been passed down and treasured by the earliest Christian communities. Each gospel writer did this work a little bit differently, but it seems that each one took the beginning very seriously, realizing perhaps that the first thing Jesus does says a lot about what he ultimately came to do. So, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first thing Jesus does after calling his first disciples is sit down and teach. And that makes sense, because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the consummate teacher, a new Moses full of wisdom, sometimes preaching and teaching for whole chapters on end. In Luke, Jesus' first public action is standing up in the synagogue in Nazareth to read a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And it's a passage about being anointed to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And that also makes sense. Because for Luke, Jesus is the one bringing freedom and release for all people, and particularly for those on the margins. In John, Jesus begins his ministry by turning water into wine as part of a wedding at Cana. And that makes great sense too. Because in John, Jesus is the one ushering in abundant life, bringing surprising grace upon grace in relationship with God. You can get a pretty good idea of what each gospel writer thinks Jesus came to do by looking at the very first thing he does after he calls his first followers. Which brings us to our reading from the Gospel of Mark today. What is the first thing Jesus does in this gospel? Tangle with a demon. Matthew and Luke also include stories of Jesus casting out unclean spirits from people. It seems clear this was an important part of his ministry and something that he was very much known for doing. But in Mark, this is where it all begins. So it's clear that for this gospel, 
Confronting an evil spirit doesn't represent just one more thing in a long list of Jesus's miraculous actions. It's at the heart of what he came to do. The story itself is pretty straightforward. Jesus, presumably with those brand new followers whom he called in our reading last week, enters the village of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee and heads to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stands up to teach and everybody is astounded at the way that he speaks. He speaks with authority, say the worshipers in the congregation that day. He's not just going over the same old stories and giving somebody else's interpretation. He's teaching as though he really has something to say, as though these old texts are really alive and active in him, as though there is some higher authority working through him. And as this is going on, as Jesus is teaching, a man in the back pipes up, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? If you pause here, this is actually an interesting moment. Jesus didn't initiate the conversation with the spirit that's possessing this man. Instead, it's as though the spirit recognizes that Jesus' teaching and presence somehow pose a threat. The spirit can tell that it's not safe with Jesus around, and it can't help but speak up. Jesus rebukes it with those few harsh and authoritative words, be silent and come out of him, and it's all over as quickly as it began. The man is returned to his own mind, and the worshipers are left stunned with what they've just seen. What began as a sort of regular old sleepy morning at the local synagogue turned out to be something else entirely. This is a dramatic story, that's for sure. But with all those clippings strewn across the desk, with all the other things that Jesus said and did, why would Mark pick this one to begin with? What's he trying to say about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Well, maybe he's pointing to something very simple. Jesus came to oppose anything that stands in the way of life that is full and free. I mean, whatever you think this unclean spirit in the story is, there's no question that it is choking off life for the man who shows up in the synagogue that day. His words are not his own. He's not free to give and receive love. He is literally possessed by something else. As long as this spirit has a hold on him, life is only a shell of what it might be. And Jesus will have none of it. For lots of us, I think, stories of demonic possession can feel a little bit distant from the realm of our everyday experience. But when you think of it this way, when you think of an unclean spirit as anything that gets in the way of a free and full life, anything that impedes the work of love, it's probably not too hard to come up with a host of spirits we've encountered, whether in our own lives or in those of others we love. There's the spirit of shame, the feeling that one is simply inadequate, unwanted, unlovable. There's the spirit of fear, not the ordinary and sometimes necessary kind, but the crippling, paralyzing sort that says no risk is worth taking, that turns life into a series of closed doors. There's the spirit of self-centeredness, 
the endless compulsion to fixate on yourself, your own wants and needs, while looking right past those around you. There's the spirit of acquisitiveness, the restless need to spend, to accumulate, to search for fulfillment in the next thing, the next purchase. There's the spirit of systemic racism, the countless ways we may be bound up in patterns and policies of long-standing injustice. You could add more to that list, I'm sure. The point is there are any number of things that can possess us, that can choke off life, making it so much less than what it's meant to be. And Jesus comes in opposition to them all, in opposition to anything less than life that is lived in gracious openness to God and in service to our neighbors. So, okay, you might be saying, that's nice that Jesus could just whisk the demon out of the man in Capernaum a couple thousand years ago. And it's great that Mark thinks that's what Jesus came to do on a grander scale. But what about all those unclean spirits still riding high? What about the ones that ensnare our lives and the lives of others we know, the ones holding on to our communities and our world? I don't think there are really magic formulas here. I don't think Jesus wants us all running around and shouting, be silent and come out, anytime we encounter somebody who's speaking in a self-centered way. That might be an interesting experiment, but I don't think you'd have the desired effect. Instead, our reading today actually makes me wonder about the role of Christian community, about being the church. I mean, maybe that is what we're here for, in part, to be a place where we can be honest about all that is demonic in our lives and in our world, all that is choking off life for us or for our neighbors, a place where we can name those unclean spirits and stand together in prayer and mutual support, reminding one another of the freedom and joy that God intends and taking steps forward as we're able. It's easier to picture that work of the church in a season when we are filling up this sanctuary together and all crowding into the Gemeinde realm for coffee and conversation. But I do continue to be amazed at the ways community can happen over a Zoom coffee hour or an online Bible study or a phone call, at the ways we can still keep showing up, holding up the promise of life for each other and for our world even now. Mark begins here for a reason. And maybe it's to remind us that this is our calling too. To be a community that is courageous both in naming all that gets in the way of life and in trusting in the one who points to the freedom and joy that God intends. Friends, he is our authority. And he calls us again to life. Thanks be to God. Amen.